our scripture reading today is uh, found in Psalm chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. So uh, if you want to follow along with me, Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11, a psalm of David. Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong, for like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good, then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your, desire, your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him, and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn, and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. Soon the wicked will disappear. Though you look for them, they will be gone. The lowly will possess the land and will live in peace and prosperity. God bless the reading of his word. Well, now it's a privilege I have to introduce uh, our guest speaker, uh, Doug Mockmeyer. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, he's one of our interim pastoral candidates. But he and his wife uh, currently live in uh, Gig Harbor, Washington. And after 45 years of, as a senior pastor, Doug now works for an organization called Interim Pastor Ministries, where he has served five other churches as their transition between pastors. Doug enjoys sailing, travel, biking, and reading. So please welcome with me, Doug Markmeyer. Well, good morning. Can you hear me? Okay, we're good. Thanks for the warm welcome. <laughs> we're glad to be here, and uh, thank you for the invitation. I just want to say before I get started, uh, our sympathies are with you as a congregation, as you uh, will be uh, saying goodbye during your memorial service uh, at the end of the week. Uh, of Pastor Gary, who you know has served faithfully here as your shepherd for 23 years. I know if that's the case, he's had an impact on many of you, and you'll have memories, and I trust that uh, as you uh, share those memories that uh, the Lord will bring healing as well. Somebody posted on my Facebook this past week, grief is not a sign of weakness, nor is it a lack of faith. It's the price of love. And so if you think about that as you move forward this week, I trust that you will recognize that uh, you're expressing your love through your grief, and you'll be in our prayers. Kind of like uh, Missionary Sunday this morning, because uh, Keisha has shared a little bit about what she's been doing. We as a family uh, have connections with missions, 
let me tell you just a little bit about ourselves. Um, my wife, Mary, uh, is here. You can greet her. And we have uh, two kids. Our oldest daughter is married and has three kids. And uh, they have been with us over the last month. And we've enjoyed. This is a picture of our tribe in Tunisia uh, back uh, a year ago when we were uh, there to visit and got stuck because of COVID and ended up staying there for six months. And this is in a, a Roman village ruins uh, called Duga. And all of the kids and our youngest daughter is there as well. Anna Marie, Matt, and the three grandkids have spent 14 years in, Tuni in Amman, Jordan. Our son-in-law works as a, uh, a consultant with practical theological education by extension. They do biblical uh, training and teaching throughout the Middle East, and he has worked with them. A year ago, they moved to Tunisia because of the cost of living in Amman becoming so expensive, and he's able to work remotely with PTEE, so he's working with them. And our daughter is a social worker. Uh, at the school where our kids are, are attending came, uh, Carthage Classical Academy. Our youngest daughter uh, has been in Tunisia for four years. She went with as an English language fellow with the uh, U.S. State Department, was there with them for two years, and then for the last two years has worked for very, two other uh, English language uh, schools. She's in the process of moving and uh, will be moving to Valencia, Spain, where she'll be teaching uh, again this, this fall. Mary's actually going to be going over and helping her with that transition. So that gives you a little bit of a background of our family. Uh, I've been involved in pastoral ministry since 1966. I started out as a youth pastor in Rochester, Minnesota, and one of the blessings of being around for a while is some of these kids are now looking us up, and the uh, first of September, they're having a reunion of the youth group that I was a part of back in 66, and they've invited us to come back. I'm not sure we're going to make it, but it's kind of refreshing just to hear stories of some of these kids who have grown up and still have memories of that youth group back in 1966. I've served churches in Illinois and in uh, Washington State, and then also in British Columbia. I retired uh, from full-time pastoral ministries in 2011, and at that point, my kids said I flunked uh, retirement because I went on board with interim pastor ministries and over the last years have worked in churches, uh, five different churches in Gothenburg, Nebraska, Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, Costa Rica, for six months, uh, South uh, Seattle, Rainier Valley, and then Irondale Church near Port Townsend. So those are the times that we've served. As an interim pastor, one of the things that we try to do is to help the church in that period of transition. And I say there's five areas in directions that you look. First, you look back and see how God has led and how God has been faithful to the church and where he's brought you and where that trajectory might lead. So you look back and see what, what you can learn from that. But then I also say you look up because sometimes when you're in the midst of a transition, what happens is you forget to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. Uh, we're a little bit like Peter. 
you know, the waves are kind of scaring us, and so we take our eyes off the Lord, and then, then it gets kind of dicey. But the Lord says, you know, keep your eyes fixed on me, and I'll be faithful to you. So we spend a lot of time in prayer, focusing attention on trusting and looking to the Lord for his guidance. Then we look within. Who are we? What, is, what congregation are we? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What has the Lord gifted us with? And, and how can we use those gifts? And we get a kind of a personal assessment of the congregation as a whole. Then we look out. What is our mission field? Uh, who has God called us to serve? And how can we do that? And then finally, we look forward. Where is God leading us? Where is he taking us? And at that point, we begin to look at who can lead in that way, and you begin to work in terms of finding a, a, another lead pastor who can lead into the future. So that's kind of what an interim pastor does and works together with a transition team, with the leadership team at the church in looking in those five different directions. When Maddie called and asked that I speak, she said, could you speak on Joshua 19? And I said to her, well, that makes it easy. I don't have to decide on the text. And then I looked up the text. <laughs> and it became quite of a challenge over these last couple of weeks as I've been thinking and praying about it. Because chapter 19 is a little bit like walking into the office of a title company and looking at all the uh, descriptions of, of land that's before us. And uh, you're tempted to skip over it. But it's there for a reason. And as the New Testament says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. So I trust this morning that as we look at this text, that the Lord will give us some direction as we study it together. Let's just pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. And now we pray that as we see it together, that you would open our eyes to what you have for us and that you would apply it to our hearts and that we might learn what you have for us and that we lear might learn a little bit more about you and who you are and what you have done for us. So we commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Just a little bit of a review of the context. Perhaps you're familiar now because you've been with this whole book of Joshua for quite a time. But let's put this text of chapter 19 into the, the broader context this morning and just review a little bit. I know Nate Heading and, uh, and Steve and Paul May who have been working with you on, on the text. But just to give you a quick overview to put chapter 19 in perspective. The structure of, of Joshua is really kind of threefold. First, there's the entering of the land. As they cross the Jordan River and they enter into the land, they make, uh, renew the covenant, and uh, there's that sense of the manna and the quail ending and God beginning to provide for them through the land itself. And then they move into conquer the, conquering the land. And the next section is uh, the invasion as they overcome the enemies that are in the land. The central campaign basically being Jericho and Ai, and then uh, the southern campaign, the northern campaign. And then in the middle of the book, you have kind of a summary of that taking over of the land. 
The text that we're looking at this morning, chapter 19, falls in that last section, which is in the division of the land. And uh, from chapter 13, verse 1, all the way really to the end of the chapter, but more specifically to the end of chapter 19, it's looking at the, the allotment of the land. And specifically this morning as we look at chapters 18 and 19, it's the allotment of the land to the last seven tribes. And uh, as you come to the end of chapter 19, uh, chapter 18, they've moved to Shiloh and they begin to divide the land. And at the end of chapter 19, there's this statement. Chapter 19, verses 49 through 51. These are the territories that the priest Eliezer, Joshua, son of Nun, and the tribal leaders allocated as grants of land to the tribes of Israel by casting lots in the presence of the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle at Shiloh. So the divisions of the land was completed. So it's essentially that wraps up the division of the land and the giving to the seven tribes. And we'll look a little bit more specifically at a specific statement that's in this chapter 19, verses 49 through 51 in a moment. So, as you look at the summary that we've just gone through, it's pretty clear that the major focus of the whole book of Joshua is land. You move into the land. You capture the land. You allot uh, the land to others. The focus of the book is land. Give me land. Land, lots of land. Under the starry skies above. Don't fence me in. And that song came to my mind as I was looking at this because land becomes the central theme. Why land? So what's so special about land? Well, I know you've already heard this, but clearly it's the fulfillment of God's promise back in Genesis to Abraham. Three times in the book of Genesis, God promises Abraham that he will give him land. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, he repeats it again. He says, go to the, so the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day and said, I have given you this land for your descendants all the way from the borders of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgasites, and Jebusites, and all the other tites. Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you for generations to generations. This is an everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will give you the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as foreigners. To you and your descendants, it will be their possessions forever, and I will be their God. So the significance of land is that it is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. But why land? God could have promised Abraham lots of things. He didn't need the land for God's provision for his daily needs. When he had needs in Egypt, God provided for them. 
On their way to the promised land, he provided them with manna and the quail for them to eat. So it was not as though he needed to give them land so that they could survive. Why land? We don't always know the plans and the purposes of God, but as I reflected on this and as I thought about it in light of the assignment of Joshua chapter 19, it began to occur to me that if you really look at the scope of Scripture, human life began in the garden, according to Genesis. God created humankind and placed them in a garden. He gave them a place. He gave them land. And they were to steward that land. Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the land is His. The garden belonged to God. But he gave it to Adam and Eve for them to steward. He invites humankind to tend it. But he sets limits on it. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know the story. Adam and Eve ignore the limit, ignore the boundaries. And as a result, they're put out of the garden. They lose their piece of land. And the angel stands with the sword, preventing them from coming back into the Garden of Eden. So when God gives a promise of land to Abraham, it has much more to do than just simply giving Abraham a promise. It is connected, I believe, back to the book of Genesis and the loss of land And what God is promising Abraham is that he, in his grand scope, he is going to give back to humankind the land that they have lost. He is going to restore what has been lost. And that's the whole story of salvation, is the restoration of what has been lost. The story of the Bible is the story of how God, in his great mercy, promises humankind their place. Back to the garden. Somebody has noted that the biblical narrative of humankind begins in the Garden of Eden and it ends in a garden as it's described in the book of Revelation. So when we look at Joshua and we understand the nature of land, it becomes very interesting to us because when we look at chapters 18 and 19, Specifically, it's about land, but it's about dividing the land, setting boundaries, boundaries, borders, divisions, limits. That's the whole thrust of chapter 18 and 19. The process of doing that has some significance. While this is back in chapter 18, I think it helps us to understand the the listing in chapter 19. Listen to these words from 18, verses 1 through 6. Now that the land was under Israelite control, the entire community of Israel gathered at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle. There they remained, seven tribes, there, but there remained seven tribes who had not yet been allotted their grant of land. Then Joshua asked them, How long are you going to wait before taking possession of the remaining land the Lord the God of your ancestors had given you. Select three men from each of the tribes, and I will send them out to explore the land and map it out. 
they will then return to me and with a written report of their proposed divisions of their new homeland. Let them divide the land into seven sections, excluding Judah's territory in the south and Joseph's territory in the north. And when you record the seven divisions of land and bringing them to me, I will cast lots in the presence of the Lord our God to assign land to each tribe. Now it says that the land had been taken, but they were not yet allotting it. What was keeping them from taking the land? It may have been that they were a little bit nervous yet about pushing out those who were inhabiting the land. They may not have had, had the strength, but maybe it's something else. Uh, there's something else, I think, implied in the way in which Joshua approaches the issue of taking the land. They're to select these three men from each tribe, and they're to go out and they're to explore and survey the land and uh, provide Joshua with a written report of how they have decided to divide up the land into seven portions. And then the, uh, Joshua was going to assign that land by lot, by chance. The rest of chapter 18 and the whole of chapter 19 then becomes the definition of the borders, the boundaries, and the limits for each tribe. And you have this summary that we just read from chapter 19, the end of the chapter, where it says, the tribal leaders allocated grants of land to the tribes of Israel by casting sacred lots in the presence of the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle at Shiloh. So the division of the land was completed. That's the third time from chapter 18 through chapter 19 that there's a reference to the casting of lots in the process of dividing the land. Maybe that's an important clue. Maybe the reason there had been a standstill was because the tribes could not agree on who's going to get what piece of land. So Joshua gets them involved in the process of proposing the boundaries and then assigning the lots, uh, the, each lot by, by taking uh, a, a lot, casting lots. Could it be that the, grand, uh, the tribes were a lot like my grandkids? You know, when you have a piece of dessert, one last piece of dessert, and you have two grandkids who want that piece of dessert, uh, they've, got, they've, they've devised a unique scheme in order to uh, make that fair. One of them gets to divide it, and the other one gets to pick. And I would submit to you that maybe what was going on with the children of Israel and the seven tribes is that they could not agree on who was going to get which piece of land until finally they did it in this way. Borders, boundaries, divisions, limits bring out the selfishness and the pride in the heart of humankind. And the jealousies of Israel, for that matter, may well have been holding them back from taking over the land. You know, if we review the wars and the fights that have taken place throughout history, many, if not most, have been caused by disputes over borders, divisions over land. To this day, the tensions 
in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine are disputes over who owns the land, where the boundaries should be drawn. Robert Foss, back in 1914, wrote the well-known poem, Mending Walls, where he said, good fences make good neighbors. What was happening in the life of the children of Israel is what they were having to divide that land. And jealousies and selfishness may well have been the thing that helped them, kept them from it until finally they were able to resolve it. It's interesting that the children of Israel were given land. But if you understand the law of the covenant, along with the gift of the promised land, God also gave instructions on how the land was to be used. Kind of reminds us of Genesis. Here's your land. Here's the limits. Think, for example, in Leviticus chapter 25, where we read about the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee and the regulations on the property. Listen to Leviticus 25, 23. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis, for the land belongs to me. You are only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. Or listen to the words of Deuteronomy 19, 14. When you arrive in the land the Lord your God has given you as your special possession, you must never steal anyone's land by moving boundary markers your ancestors set up to mark their property. It's about boundaries. It's about limits. It's about respecting those boundaries and limits. When God gave Adam and Eve the Garden of Eden as their place, he gave them limits. They were not to eat of the knowledge of the tree of evil. We sing, give me land, lots of land, under sky, starry skies above. Don't fess me in. Selfishness and greed accompany our reception of God's gracious gift. Why? Because we very quickly take the position of ownership rather than stewardship. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We sing, this land is your land, this land is my land. Not so. The land is the Lord's. It is ours to tend and to care for, to steward. But so quickly we shift to that attitude of possession. I'm going to take a real quick minute here. I'm running a little short on time, but I want to add this to it. Recently, I've come to see this on a personal basis. I've been doing a lot of research about our families, Mary's family in Northern California and mine in Northwest Iowa. And on the screen, it's kind of hard to see, but this is a, a map of Dale Township in Northwest Iowa, Lyon County. In 1898, my great-grandfather moved to Northwest Iowa and um, Dale Township uh, and Section 11, the northeast corner of Section 11, he homesteaded a farm. But I had been doing a little research and I discovered that that piece of land uh, was purchased by, by him from some real estate people who had purchased it from the railroad. And the railroad had received that land because they had given, uh, the state of Iowa had given 10 miles on each side of the uh, rail 
for them to sell in order to raise capital to build the railroad. The state of Iowa got that land from the federal government who deeded it to Iowa. The federal government got it in 1851 by a treaty in July with the Dakota Indians, and that treaty was the treaty of, uh, I've got it written down here, Traverse de Sioux. And so they received the land. But if you know anything about treaties with the Indians, you know that there's a lot of issues that went with that. And so while I was so proud that we as a family, the Muckemeyer family, had this farm homesteaded since 1898 and had been living on that, Muckemeyer's living on that farm ever since, I really began to realize, wait a minute, whose land is this? Where did this land come from? And then I was really jarred when a friend of mine said, do you know anything about the the doctrine of, of discovery? Hadn't heard about it. But essentially, it was a doctrine that was proposed by the, the church back in the 1400s, which said to explorers, if you explore the land and you discover new lands, it's yours by the right of discovery. Well, there are people there. And so I had to rethink how I saw my relationship with a piece of land in northwest Iowa. Whose land was it really? The Israelites failed to abide by the instruction to use the land. They didn't recognize the Sabbath year and the principle of inheritance connected with the year of Jubilee. As a result, God took the land from them. You know the story of how the nation of Israel went into exile. And the prophets warned that this would happen. And it was because of the way in which they related to the land. Listen to the words of Micah. In Micah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. What sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night, thinking up evil plans? You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out, simply because you have the power to do so. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. In that day, your enemies will make fun of you by singing this song of despair about you. We are finished, completely ruined. God has confiscated our land, taking it from us. He has given us, given our fields to those who betrayed us. Others will set your boundaries then, and the Lord's people will have no say on how the land is divided. That's what happened, because they refused to recognize that along with giving them the land, the Lord had given them limits and boundaries and and instructions about how that land was to be used. There's an interesting example of how that took place in 1 Kings chapter 21. You may recall the story of how Ahab saw his neighbor Naboth with a beautiful vineyard right next to his property. And he says to Naboth, sell me your land. And Naboth said, no, don't you understand the the rules of inheritance? The instructions God gave us about inheritance in the promised land. And he refused to uh, give the land to Ahab. And so Ahab's wife Jezebel says, we can take care of that. She has a scheme developed and uh, invites Naboth to a banquet where he is 
uh, people around him tell him tell stories about how bad he is and everything and to the point where they finally decide he needs to be done away with and he is he's put to death and so then Jezebel says okay Ahab, move in the land is yours an example of what had happened when people began to not respect the boundaries but that's not the end of the story one of the interesting things is that as well as predicting the, the loss of the land, the prophets also warned that God, also predicted that God's grace would enable them to receive it again. As a way of illustrating God's promise, Jeremiah was asked to undertake a real estate deal. Jeremiah chapter 32 a little bit like Kandahar today. The, uh, the Taliban are moving in and things are falling apart and it looks like you know, they're going to take it over. Jeremiah is in the city of Jerusalem and the Babylonians are coming in and it looks like they're going to take it over. And it's not a real good time to do a real estate deal. But God tells Jeremiah, your cousin is going to offer you a piece of land. I want you to buy it and seal the deeds and put the deeds in a jar and save them. Why did he do that? Well, Jeremiah obeys, and then these are the words of Jeremiah says, See how the siege ramps have been built against the city wall. Through war, famine, and disease, the city is going to be handed over to the Babylons who will conquer it. Everything has happened just as you said. And yet, O sovereign Lord, you have told me to buy a field paying good money for it before these witnesses, even though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians. This becomes the occasion in Jeremiah's prophecy where he prophesies the whole new covenant. And at the end of chapter 32, he says this, but this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I will certainly bring my people back from all the countries where I have scattered them in my fury. I will bring them back to this very city and let them live in peace and safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their heart to worship me and they will never leave me. I will find joy doing good for them and will be faithful wholeheartedly replanting them in this land. And this is what the Lord says. Just as I brought these calamities on them, so I will do all the good I have promised. Fields will again be bought and sold in this land about which you now say it has been ravaged by the Babylonians. A desolate land where people and animals have disappeared. Yes, Fields will once again be bought and sold. Deeds will be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin and here in Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah in the hill country, in the foothills of Judah and in the Negev too. For someday I will restore prosperity to them. I, the Lord, have spoken. There's an interesting ending to the prophecy of Ezekiel. If you go back and read the last two chapters of the prophecy of Ezekiel, you'll find that it reads almost like chapters 18 and 19 in Joshua. It almost repeats the kind of sense 
that God is dividing the land and giving it back to them. Grace point. Here's the evidence of God's grace. Even though Israel violated the Lord's instructions and ignored the boundaries and the borders and the limits that God had set, even though it resulted in the loss of their possession of the land, yet God in His great mercy promises to restore to them that land once again. There's a gospel song that I used to sing that has these lyrics. His love has no limits. His grace has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. What we learn from the experience of the nation of Israel is that even when we cross the line and step across the boundaries that God has instructed, it's not the end. God is the God who from the very beginning set, a, set out to renew and to restore what is lost when we violate those boundaries. That's the whole story of salvation. And it runs from Genesis through the land to the end of the book of Revelation. The psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 37, talks about the meek possessing the land. If you look at the Beatitudes, there's a Beatitude that says that the meek shall inherit the earth. As I've studied the Beatitudes, I'm pretty convinced that that is a step-by-step a, a, a -step explanation of what it means to be converted. Uh, look at it sometime and just look at the progression. And it's the meek, those who recognize that they're dependent upon the Lord, who began to experience God's blessing. So as we conclude this morning, here's three questions I'd like to have you think about. One, can you recall a time when perhaps you kind of stepped over the boundary, stepped over the, the, the borders, and experienced the grace of God to renew and to restore? Two, is your attitude toward God's creation one of ownership or stewardship? And three, maybe God is speaking to you at how you can bless others through the grace of God that's been extended to you by sharing that story with someone else. Let's just close in a moment of uh, silence as you think and reflect on that, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for your gracious kindness and loving mercy to us. We are so much like the children of Israel in that you have given us great gifts along with the instructions and how we should use them. And sometimes we ignore those instructions and just basically possess the gifts without recognizing our need for being stewards. So we pray that through the lessons from the children of Israel, that we might rejoice in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who gives and gives and gives again. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your mercy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we Well, thank you for all of you for being with us today. Uh, thank you, Doug, for a great message. And uh, thank you, worship team, and all who, uh, and Keisha and the AV team, all who participated in our service today. Uh, here's the uh, words uh, uh, from Scripture, the benefic- benediction as we uh, go out from Jude chapter, or <laughs> Jude chapter, uh, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.